The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. There is something so romantic about being a writer. And yet, in the current era, it's tough to be a writer because we've got an internet where content is free, but writers still need to pay their bills. Every now and then, you run into a remarkable woman who is a professional writer, even today, not only making a living, but putting out high quality, need to read journalism and books. And our guest today is one of those. We'll be meeting her in just a moment. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Oh my gosh, so many people are doing such wonderful things that whenever I've been watching too much televised news and start to think, what is wrong with people? Then I look at who's going to be coming on this program over the next several weeks. And I know, oh, so many people are doing so much good and there's so much hope in the world. So in this hopeful note, I am excited today to introduce you to Karen Asp. She is an award-winning journalist and author of Anti-Aging Hacks. So believe me, we're going to talk about some of those in this hour. In her career, she's been a contributing editor for Women's Day, fitness columnist and pet columnist for Allure. And she is now a contributing writer for Veg News and a contributing health editor for TheBeat.com. She writes regularly for publications, including Sentient Media, Eating Well, Real Simple, 
Forks Over Knives Everyday Health, O, Better Homes and Gardens. And in her spare time, she volunteers with organizations that rescue companion animals, especially those from research labs and puppy mills. Welcome, Karen. Victoria, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. And it's such an honor to be here. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be talking to your, your audience. And I'm sure that if they are listening to this, they are all remarkable and could probably be on your podcast as well. So thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. And I think you are absolutely right about the listeners. Whenever I hear from them on the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook, it's just such an honor. Yeah, I, I think sometimes... We think that we're always speaking to people who are beginners in our area of expertise. But what I've learned over the years is that very often I'm speaking to people that I could be listening to. And I guess that is what we do. We kind of go back and forth and sometimes we're the teacher and sometimes we're the student. Exactly. So we've actually done both because I've read your wonderful book, Anti-Aging Hacks, lots of your articles, and you've come to Main Street Vegan Academy. So we have traded in that student and teacher role. So let's start, Karen, with your life as a journalist. As a little girl, I was always so fascinated by journalism and the writers that sat around the round table at the Algonquin Hotel back in the day and did all this amazing writing. And I started out my career that way, and it was great for many years. And now magazines aren't so much, and there's an internet, but that's hard for professional writers. So how on earth have you made the cut, defied the odds, and continued to be a working journalist in 2022? Oh, Victoria, the million dollar question, right? I think that, um, oh, who knows? There's probably some luck. I hope that there's some talent there, but there's also, you know, professionalism, which I think has somewhat gone out the door these days in terms of just work ethics and even just down to a simple thank you, being kind, things like that. But it's definitely a changed industry and you don't have to be a journalist to see that. I'm sure that, Many of your remarkable listeners are seeing that their favorite magazines have disappeared over the years. So we're talking things like, oh, the Oprah magazine used to be in print. Martha Stewart Living used to be in print. Um, You know, eating well, cooking light, health. I mean, going way back into the shape and the self and the fitness days. All of these magazines are now extinct. And I would say that magazines are an endangered species. And so it's a very different world to navigate these days. You know, we have less print magazines. We have much, much more digital content. And I think that's a reflection of the change in how people are reading. I think that certainly we had been seeing that before the pandemic came along. But of course, once that happened, everybody turned to their internet um, and the digital content just started going nuts. The magazine content has 
Well, the print magazines, I think, are on the way out. I never would have thought I'd have said that years ago, but I think that, you know, the ones who are out there are, are struggling right now. And I think we're seeing a rise, though, in custom content publishing in magazines, which for readers who aren't familiar, you might see, for instance, single title magazines now on newsstands. And these are becoming much more popular. I just put out one with Time magazine about cancer. It's a whole issue devoted to medical breakthroughs. But my pieces were on uh, cancer topics. So I had two features in there. And they're what we call one-off or single title magazines. And they sit on the newsstands for a certain amount of time. And that's the only time that you'll see that magazine once it goes off the newsstand. It's the only place you can buy it except online. So it's a very different world, Victoria. And how I've managed to stay in it, I honestly don't know. I think sometimes I'm a little bit... I call myself an old school journalist because I don't have all of the, you know, the big term these days is SEO and uh, search engine optimization, um, which I understand they're studying in journalism schools now. I never got that. So it's just been something I've had to learn. And I have a lot of editors who say, oh, do you have SEO experience? And it's just boggling to the mind to see where writing has gone. But again, I think a lot of it has been a shift in how people are reading and how they're digesting information. And again, we had been seeing this shift along maybe five, 10 years ago in that people were starting to digest articles in smaller amounts. They don't want long, long articles. They want short pieces, attention span, focus, those two things have really dropped in the past few years. And so it's really tough to get people to read long articles. And so the shorter the article, the better, the punchier it is, the better, the, you know, the more breaks in the article to give the eyes and the mind a break, the better. So it's a very different world. So I honestly wish I knew how I were still here, but I still am. And I'm grateful for that. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful, and I admire you a lot. And even talking about the shorter articles, I don't know if magazine writers are still paid by the word, but back when I was doing that, that's how it was. And if you were assigned a 2,500-word article, that just meant more for payday than if it was a 1,000-word article. Yeah. And that's still, Victoria, that is still pretty much the model for print magazines. So for print magazines that are still out there, that that really is still what is, is happening. It's still the same for digital, but digital for some reason, Victoria, and I have never understood this because you're getting the same journalist. You're, well, I mean, as a journalist who would write for print, you're, you know, the journalist has to tap his or her expert sources whom we have spent years, you know, building into our, um, files. And so the pay though is much less. I mean, it is, you'll still find digital publications paying similar rates as print magazines, but it is much, much less. And there's much more negotiating that has to happen as a result of it. Um, so I might, you know, have to take a lower pay, but I'll say instead of and again, for people who are not used to the journalism world, it's kind of crazy to think about everything in the word count, but that's what we do. As you just mentioned, you know that, uh, you know, I might say, well, instead of an 800 word article for this amount, can I give you a 500 word article for the same amount? <laughs> so it's really, you know, you're bartering words, but words matter. And, you know, it's, 
I think it's also a reflection to Victoria that in today's society, and I hate to say this, and certainly this doesn't hold true for everything, but I think that writing is not valued to the point that it once was. It's kind of anybody can be a writer. My husband used to joke Victoria with me about that all the time years ago. He used to say that time and time again, and it was just more to rile me. And it was kind of our thing. You go, ah, Karen, anybody can be a writer. And at that time, it really wasn't true because we didn't have as much internet. We, you know, you really had to go into the magazines if you wanted to, or the newspapers and newspapers are not easy as well. And so it wasn't easy to be a writer. Now, anybody can be a writer, but not everybody can be paid to be a writer, and you have to be very careful when you are a reader. So for all of your listeners, when you are a reader, you have to be very careful about what content you're reading and who put that content together, because that's also becoming a little sketchy in, in today's digital age, but word count is still out there, and I I still go by word count on everything. So it's very odd. My I think it was my mom one time joked and said, does that mean that you put more A's and the's and that's and <laughs> things like that in your articles? I'm like, no, mom, it doesn't mean that. It just means that, you know, so anyway, yeah. I, I actually read that Charles Dickens did that, <laughs> that he would <laughs> pad some of his work to get more money. But I remember an article in the New York Times, it was probably at least 10 years ago now, maybe more by Scott Turow and a couple of other writers. It was called, Could the Bard Have Survived the Web? And he explained that there was legislation that came to be in England in the 1500s, a couple of very important pieces of legislation for writers. One was copyright protection that your work could not be stolen. And the other was that writers had to be paid. And so with those two protections in place, we got Shakespeare, et cetera, and all the wonderful literature in, in the English language for centuries thereafter. And now with the internet, so much of that is threatened. And I would hate to see good writing becoming an endangered species. Well, and Victoria, I think in all honesty, again, I don't like to be a naysayer about it, but it does seem that we are heading in that direction. And unfortunately, we don't have an Endangered Species Act for writing per se, but, and I, I should also go back and add something to Victoria in that, you know, the, the sentiment that I expressed about anybody can be a writer, I certainly believe that is true, um, but not everybody can publish and not everybody should publish. What I'm also seeing is that many of these sites are not paying and they're paying perhaps even $5 or $10. And so, yes, it, it goes back to that. Um, I, I, I think that good writing, and I've seen many good journalists start to leave the field because it's just getting so tricky. It's dicey. It's hard. It's just a very different world than it was, say, three or four years ago. And I'm, you know, again, brought on by many, many things. But I think that, um, you know, the current health situation did not help things. So what was your life like during the pandemic? 
uh, compared to the late great year of 2019. <laughs> you know, it's funny. People often think back to their youth, their early 20s, their time in high school as the good old days. And I think it's 2019. <laughs> and we're getting right. back to that now. I'm excited about 2023 that, you know, we're all out and about. And, you know, for the time being, anyway, things are feeling pretty normal. And we're kind of partying like it's 2019. But as a journalist, what did the pandemic do to your career or for your career? Maybe it was yeah. good. Well, I, I I mean, I think that you can always find a silver lining in any um, in any uh, particular piece that you're uh, struggle that you're going through. But it 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 was good and it was bad. It was good in the sense that I was busier than ever because, especially when it first hit, because offices were closed, magazine editors were thrown into working from home. They had to rely more on freelancers. Um, that has flipped a little bit. I'm still as busy as ever. But Victoria, I think the things that have changed for me, and I have to be very honest and say that I think that we are still in the pandemic. We are not yet ready to, I'm not yet ready to return to what life was like in 2019, 2018. But pre-pandemic, I was also on the road probably every three weeks, traveling both domestically and internationally for stories. Not necessarily all, you know, most of my specialties are health, fitness, and nutrition, um, but also companion animals and farmed animals as well. But travel was becoming a bigger part of that for me. And so I was on the road constantly, um, you know, and in fact, right when everything started happening, I was in Kanab, Utah, actually volunteering at Best Friends Animal uh, Sanctuary there before I was moving on to Moab to do a, um, a an adventure trip. And I remember debating, gosh, what do I do? What do I do? Do I fly home? Do I not fly home? My husband was, you know, prepared to come out and drive to Utah to come get me if the flights all shut down. But that was pre pandemic and I, again pre 2019 or 2019 and before victoria i have traveled very very little um travel is not a focus as much anymore it still does factor in because i can still do stories i did get out you know three times last year internationally but to warm destinations where i knew i could be outside dining i don't you know do indoor dining that type of thing but i could be outdoors i could enjoy activities outdoors so it's very different and i would say too that the uh the uh, journalism itself has changed and i don't just mean because of the digital focus. But also the weird thing, Victoria, is that sources have been much more difficult to confirm. And I would say that, you know, in the past, I would, you know, email a, a PR person who had sent me some great pitch about a doctor or something, you know, whatever it is. I had a whole, I have a whole list of, of people I can call on for, to be sources for my articles. And it was always an easy time to say, hey, you know, I'm doing a feature for Martha Stewart Living about how to lower your stroke risk. And, you know, I'd love to get this cardiologist on the phone. No problem. Let's, let's get a time in and we'll meet your deadline, et cetera. Victoria, what has been interesting is that 
everybody is now crushed because of, of, of time constraints, right? I mean, especially in the medical community, and that's a lot of whom I have to pull into the articles with health, fitness, and nutrition being three of my specialties. And so what I'm seeing is that it's really difficult, more difficult to get sources lined up. It's also becoming more difficult to keep them lined up. And I say that because the, a lot of them will go MIA last minute. And we've already pushed the interview to, you know, the last possible day that I could do an interview before I, you know, need to start writing it and making sure I have enough time to go back to them for questions. So a lot of them have all of a sudden that, oh, you know what, we've got, you know, a, a really busy day in the office or something like that. And we just can't get to it today. I'm like, oh, great. Now I've got to go back out and you know, find more sources. So the sourcing has changed. Um, the other thing that's really interesting, and, and, you know, people might not realize this, but for the digital content, a little insider secret, um, a lot of these websites will rerun content that looks new, but it's actually been already published, quote unquote, in the site. And maybe they're bringing it back because they just are low on inventory, or maybe the article was high in traffic. And that's another thing, you know, with the digital sites, you're all about eyeballs. How many visits are you getting? How many clicks? How many shares, et cetera. It's, it's, it's just so different. And so for a lot of these articles, you know, they might pull them back up I don't know, I've had several come up that were I wrote maybe a year ago. I, I was like, wait, why are these suddenly coming up now? And why are PR people getting back to me to say, hey, Karen, that product is no longer available or the source has changed his or her title and we need to make a change. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, that was that's out of my realm. <laughs> so it's it's just, it's a very different, it's just a very different working environment too. And I don't mean I still work from home, but just the the parameters that you're working within have become very different. So when they reprint an article a year later, do you get any sort of payment for that? Nope. Nope. You do not. And again, it's, it's not the print magazines, although I have seen there was one flailing magazine that tried to make it in its last kind of Hail Mary hurrah and started republishing pieces Again, I had to go back scratching my head just to figure out why this sounded familiar and why people were suddenly saying, by the way, Karen, I saw your article in XYZ. But there was a magazine, a print magazine, Victoria, that actually pulled content from about three years ago and started just republishing it as the magazine. Now, they did have a note on the article that this article appeared, you know, I don't know, name the date three years ago that magazine didn't make it. But no, these uh, it's the digital sites that will pull the content back up. Um, and it it's just really, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> but, well, it is. And I think that the book business is not in critical condition, but not in the best health either. Yeah. So I know that you have an enchanting little book, Anti-Aging Hacks. I love tips. And of course, anti-aging, although we've talked about the phrase, we're not crazy about the phrase, but to delay the negative signals <laughs> that... Uh, one is uh, closer to leaving than arriving. That's a kind of a hobby of mine. And so I just really, really love that book. So what was your experience with book publishing? Uh, Victoria, it was also very different. Um, I've published two books. That was my latest, but that was 2019. And obviously, I mean, I have not gone after another book just because it's kind of a crazy time period. But 
Um, it was a good experience, although that anti-aging hacks, um, actually my, uh, the editor found me on that book because of my platform and for listeners who don't understand platform, just meaning the, uh, the media that you have, the, the ways in which you can get your name out. So for instance, because I'm in the print magazines, I'm on the digital sites, I can, you know, there's usually a little bio at the end and I can add Karen Asp is the author of the anti-aging hacks. And there you go. That's part of your platform. But uh, anyway, the editor found me because of my platform came to me with the, uh, uh, the idea. And we kind of worked through um, the whole project and how it would fall out. I, Victoria, only had eight weeks to work on that project. It was the most massive amount of time I've ever spent just devoted to one single thing, but it was in my wheelhouse because a lot of what I've written throughout the years has been what we call service articles. So there are articles that will, again, how to lower your blood pressure, how to you know, 10 ways to start a plant-based diet or, um, you know, what to look for if you're looking for a new doctor and let's say you want to veer toward a plant-based doctor. So a lot of these things were already in my wheelhouse again. So it was very, I don't want to say easy, but it was easier for me to pull that information, to do the research, to put everything together. And I, like you, love tips. And Again, they're small, they're short. There are 248 of them in the book, but they're just little action strategies that I think you can take throughout the day. And you, Victoria, noted what you and I have talked about many times. Anti-aging is a phrase I hate. You know, my grandmother, you know, I, I guess if you're if you're against aging, uh, I'm not sure what the alternative is because you know, as soon as the day that we come out of our mom, we start aging right from that second. And my grandmother would always say on her birthday, well, I guess it's better than the alternative. Um, she lived to be 93. So, you know, and it is better than the alternative, but I think, um, yeah, so they're just little tips. And I think that what people don't understand or, or, or why we get so hooked up on anti-aging, Victoria, is that I don't think we have a lot of role models out there who exemplify healthy aging. You are an exception and I would put you out there with anybody who wants to say, how do I do, how do I age more gracefully with more vitality, with more energy and all of these little tips. It's little things that you do throughout the day, but I think that people look at the big picture and they say, oh my gosh, there's just so many things to do, which is true. But if you just break them down into little itty bitty things like sip a cup of tea in the morning or go for a little walk after lunch to go get the mail, take your dog for an extra spin, um, you know, if it, even doing something as simple as being mindful while you're sipping your cup of tea or coffee or looking outside your window for a minute, that's meditation, even though you might not term it meditation all of those things. And also, of course, eating more, you know, plants, moving more, sleeping better, having purpose in life, all of those things, which sound really, really big, but can be broken down into little actionable strategies that you can take every day so that you can age better. And that's really why I was excited to be brought onto the project because I could relay that message. Oh, let's do that. 
Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. How about sharing with us, Karen, just a few of those anti-aging hacks, your very favorite ones. You love tips. I love tips. I'll bet the listeners love tips. So what are some that are kind of unusual? We all know eat well, exercise, get rest, manage your stress. But what are some of the kind of fun and funky ones that you discovered? Well, okay. So this, some people may know this, and this may not be so new to you, but it has become a a top priority, became a top priority to me years ago, Victoria, when I started doing skin cancer stories. So one of you know, we talk about wearing sunscreen and I know that that's not a new strategy, right? Everybody's heard that, but I started doing all of these articles and I had many dermatologists, especially one who said, you should be putting on every single day sunscreen from your neck up to your forehead and on the backs of your hands every single day regardless of whether it's cloudy, rainy, snowy, obviously if it's sunny, regardless if you spend all of your time indoors or not, uh, and also advised to keep the sunscreen by your toothbrush holder because then you would remember to do it. And the reason is because obviously we know that sunscreen decreases the amount of sun that will get on your face. And we know that Sun exposure is the one of the leading causes of wrinkles, um, hands, the backs of your hands also get a lot of sun exposure if you think about when you're driving. Um, and I know, Victoria, you live in the city, but for those of us who actually you know, drive around and uh, can't uh, just jump out our door and, and walk to a grocery store, you know, anytime you get in the car, anytime you're by a window, sitting by a window, your hands are usually getting a lot of sunlight. So uh, that is, is, is definitely, um, you know, one of them. I think another one, um, again, this doesn't seem like rocket science, but it is to me, um, sort of, uh, leafy greens, you know, we have all heard about eating leafy greens and my husband is, uh, an, uh, an eye doctor. So he talks with his patients too, about eating leafy greens for eyes, but, you know, you want to think about what I think about one of the tips I give is eating leafy greens at least three times a day in all of your meals and maybe incorporating them into your snacks too. And that sounds really crazy, right? But I eat leafy greens in my oatmeal. I eat leafy greens, dark leafy greens, spinach, you know, shard, kale, name whatever you want. I'll eat them in my, you know, whatever I'm making for lunch, I'll throw them into dinner as well. And then oftentimes, you know, a snack during the day might be sauteed uh, kale with a little lemon juice on top with some kimchi. Um, 
So, uh, and that leads to another thing, which is to add more <laughs> kimchi, more fermented to your um, to your meals. And I'll focus on the meeting or the eating side because another one would be simple, simple, simple. Spice up your meals, and I don't mean just adding seasonings, but I'm meaning I mean adding a little bit of heat. Now, this has kind of been a controversial area. I don't want to say controversial. It's not it's not a huge area, but adding just a little bit of spice to the level that you feel, wow, that's a little heat. If you can tolerate it and if you are healthy enough to do it, some people don't, you know, it upsets their, you know, their heart, their tummy, et cetera, but it can actually increase lifespan by eating spicier foods. So I always have hot sauce out and I love things spicy hot. So I always shake some onto my, even into my oatmeal. Um, so little things like that. Those are some of the big ones. I think that are some of the, some of the ones that kind of stand out. I think the another one that people may not be familiar with, uh, at least if you're not in the plant-based world is Meatless Monday. I know that that's also, um, you know, some people are aware of it, but it's how my husband started eating more plants. Um, and I think it's a great starting point for somebody who wants to, again, you hear the term plant-based in grocery stores these days, you see it in magazines and digital content all the time these days. And I think Mondays are a great time for a reset, whatever habit you're trying to reset. And so I love the concept of, of if you are trying to eat more plant-based, which we all should be doing um, for health, for the environment, for the animals, certainly, then Monday is a great place to start. And so that's just another one that for people who might not be familiar with it. Oh, thank you so much. And the book, of course, Anti-Aging Hacks is excellent. It's a quick read, but it's also a great one to go back to. It's one I keep near my bed and I'll sometimes just open it up and see kind of almost like inspiration. It's like, uh, what's my tip for the day? And that's so interesting when you talked about the driving and the hands, because I haven't driven on any kind of regular <laughs> basis for 23 years, right. but I used to drive all the time. And it's funny how some of this stuff is retroactive. It's like you do the action, but you don't see the result until later. Right. So I moved to New York in 2000. And then I started noticing eh, about when I turned 60, it's like, boy, my hands, they have some little freckles. Right. And I noticed that the left hand was so much worse than the right because of all that driving that I had done years before. So it's really funny. It's almost like physiological karma. If you live long enough, you see the results of everything you did before, but not always bad because you also see the results of all the good stuff. You know, every day you got up to exercise, every day you did make the green smoothie, it, <laughs> it'll come back and, you know, give you those benefits. Exactly. So, yeah. Karen, you have an avocation. You have a passion, and that is that you rescue dogs and cats from untenable situations. So first, thank you. Thank you for doing that. You're on the front line. That takes so much courage. So just tell us a little bit about what you've been doing, particularly your work in Beagle Rescue. Oh, Victoria, thank you. Well, I'm just one of many individuals who are working to make the world better for animals. And I happen to be with a shelter. I volunteer. That's another 
by the way, anti-aging hack. I volunteer with, um, you know, my local animal shelter and we're really a forward thinking animal shelter. We partner with the Humane Society frequently. As many people know, over the summer, 4,000 beagles were rescued from a plant uh, in Vigo and the Humane Society brokered the deal, but it was PETA who did the undercover investigation to find out about the cruelty that was going on with these beagles. Now it is still legal, a lot of people ask me this question, to uh, you know test on animals, but it is, there are parameters they have to follow. Anyway, my shelter uh, stepped up to say that we would take as many beagles as we could handle. We did not know anything about where these beagles were going at the time, what was happening. We just signed up. And I, Victoria, have to say that I'm so grateful to be, have been asked by the shelter to be one of four. So a team of four of us from my shelter where I volunteer in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it's humane Fort Wayne, went down to uh, Virginia, Cumberland, Virginia, was two staff and two volunteers. And this was early on in the beagle rescue. There weren't that many uh, we didn't know, we didn't have many accounts from other shelters of what was going on or what they were finding. We knew only that we had to be there on a Thursday. Thursdays were the day that these beagles were being released. And I'll just preface or note this by saying that we got, the Humane Society worked to get 4,000 of these beagles out, Victoria. The statistics that I have seen are that we have another 60,000 dogs and countless number of other animals, cats, guinea pigs, mice, et cetera, monkeys in these labs. But we knew only that we were there on a Thursday. We were not allowed to tell anybody what we were doing or where we were going. So I took that to the next level. And my husband was the only one who knew. I didn't tell my mom, didn't tell my sister, didn't tell friends, didn't tell anybody. We drove down there. And then the next morning, Victoria, we got to the plant and we were one of probably, I would say, eight shelters there. We just lined up our vans. We had two vans with us. We knew only that we were getting 25 beagles. We had absolutely no idea what condition they were in, whether they would be males or females, how old they would be. We knew nothing. We were also told that we could not have any cell phones, no cameras, no nothing, or the mission could be jeopardized. So when we got there, it was a very... It was probably, Victoria, one of the most moving experiences I have ever been through. And I had, um, you know, for for readers or for listeners, I am actually, a, as you are, Victoria, an ethical vegan. I follow a plant-only life uh, diet, but a vegan lifestyle. And for years, I have not only not eaten animals, but I also make every effort not to use them in any product that I uh, would bring into my house cosmetics, um, you know, furniture, things like that. And it was the most moving thing to be sitting. And I did sit and did a meditation outside the gate and it was a gated fence that led, there was a three mile road that went to the plant. We were not allowed to be there to go down that road. We stopped our vans at the gate. There was a huge, you know, no trespassing sign. There were cameras up and we waited there. Humane Society took each of the shelter's vans back. So we had three employees from Humane Society when our turn was up and we just basically were in line. Eight shelters in line, we were third. 
They drove our vans back. We kind of made sure everything was all set up. So we spent the night before in the morning of prepping our 25 crates with pee pads, with uh, little uh, you know water bowls that hooked to the to the crates so that we could put ice in for the beagles uh keep in mind that they've never left the facility they'd never been in a car before they we also were in cumberland virginia which is the most beautiful place in the world in terms of the surroundings the forest the birds were singing and yet there was this horrible plant that was doing such cruel things but to get to this plant, we had to drive through the mountains of Virginia. Well, these are dogs who have never been in a car. So uh, we did not know what was going to happen. But anyway, uh, Humane Society took our vans back. They were gone for about 45 minutes. And during that time, we just waited. No clue what was going to happen. We just waited and waited. They got back to us. We opened the back of our van. We had already seen two of the other shelters come out. So we had seen their beagles. All we could do was open the back of the van to make sure that all of the crates were secure and they did not want us to stay on the property to quote unquote, look at the beagles. We had to get off the property. So we drove to the nearest gas station and that is when we saw our beagles for the first time. And Victoria too, the other thing, they handed us a stack of papers and those papers held everything about this these dogs history. So their vaccination reports, um, you know, what age they were, none of them were identified by name. They all had six letter combinations tattooed in green under their left ear, which we saw when we uh, stopped at the gas station. So it was the most amazing experience, Victoria, because here I had been all of these years advocating in my own personal life and also writing in, in as much writing as I could not to consume animals and not to use animals and to actually be this close to animals who were destined for research labs. These animals were going to be tested on and then they were going to be no doubt inhumanely destroyed. And to have them be in front of me, we had 25, we found out, male beagles, one and a half years old, and we got them all ready. And then we had a quite interesting ride back because somebody decided that it was a good idea to feed them breakfast. These are dogs who have never been in a car. They've never been outside the facility. They've never seen sunlight. They've never been on grass. And we, in a transport like this, we just keep them in their crates unless we have to take them out, keep them in the crates. The crates were a mess, as you can imagine. We had vomit, we had, I mean, urine, we had poop, we had everything. And Victoria, just the minute you open the crate, you just see these little eyes peering at you, shaking, scared. And what we did was transform them. We brought them into the shelter. We cared for them. And we found that group all loving homes. We then went back and I was not on the transport side this time. I was on the receiving side. So we brought back another 25 beagles. This time they were all females. Again, we didn't know who we were getting. 25 beagles, uh, females, one year old this time. So they hadn't been in the research lab or the, the facility. It was a breeding facility. Uh, they hadn't been in the breeding facility as long. So they weren't as 
difficult or as shut down as some of the boys were. And so again, I worked with them then for the next nine days, I went in every single day and worked with them to clean their cages and, you know, take them out. And at the time it was, you know, they, a lot of them had never been on a leash. So you had to carry them out, um, hand feed them often. So We've also found them loving homes as well. So that was a really moving experience, Victoria, especially from somebody with, again, the vegan lens that I um, put on it. So there was the puppy mill rescue and or, I'm sorry, the, the beagle rescue. And we I am now working. Hopefully we I'm going to be working to enact an ordinance in the city where I live to ban the sales of any lab animal and also puppy mills in stores. This is coming under some harsh criticism from Indiana. We've got some state bills that may make this impossible, but that would be my next goal. So that was kind of the beagles. <laughs> uh, you're, you're just so inspiring. And thank you for that gripping story. I think we've all read about the rescue of these beagles, but to really get some of the on the ground details is amazing. And good luck to you with the legislation. I know that the no puppies from puppy mills, it was uh, actually dogs, cats, or rabbits that, that come from these kinds of places can be sold in um, in pet stores in New York State. I'm not sure when that will go into effect, but the governor did sign the bill. So all the, all the little victories. And I just also want to share with the listeners who know that we recently adopted Rupert, who yeah. is a dog from a hoarding situation. And as long as I have been around animal rights, I've never really been in animal rescue. I mean, I've always had rescue animals, but I didn't do the rescue myself unless finding somebody on the street and <laughs> adopting him or her uh, counts because I had several of those experiences. But when we adopted Rupert, we just naively assumed that he was somebody's pet who maybe the humans passed away or got sick or lost a job or had a child with an allergy, you know, all these reasons that people uh, give up animals. I didn't know until we had already committed that he had come from hoarding. Yeah. And, you know, we know about people who hoard stuff from all the reality shows on TV, but there are lots of people who hoard living beings, different mm -hmm. kinds of animals, all kinds of animals. And many times they, they call themselves a shelter. And I think in their own minds, they think that they're sheltering and helping animals, but it's a terrible situation. And then the animals have what I would call PTSD. So you were so helpful to me personally when I was thinking, is Rupert ever going to get better? And yes, he is. <laughs> he is getting better. I just shared with you before we started to record that we've had him for five and a half weeks. And until day before yesterday, we had never heard his voice. Yeah, and uh, somebody came to do some work on the apartment who was a new person Rupert had never met. And Rupert looked at this man and then looked at me. And it was as if he was saying, okay, I can do this. I'm the dog. This is my job. And he goes, arf, arf. 
And it was just almost like, I don't know this person and I need to warn you of that. And I mean, it was just like the sun come had come out after a storm. <laughs> it was so wonderful to hear his little voice. Well, and I think, Victoria, that is surprising because a lot of people, again, these dogs need to learn how to dog. It was just like the beagles who came from the rescue facility, Rupert from a hoarding case. And I've been doing, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of work too with puppy mill rescue and have been on three rescues in the past month and a half. In fact, my uh, little Ellie, who is almost eight months old, um, is actually a puppy mill survivor as well. Now she wasn't in it as long, so she didn't have, you know, kind of the, the trauma that others have had, but certainly I've had a foster here for five days before moving him onto his um, uh, more uh, permanent foster. We just didn't have the transport arranged yet. And Victoria was very similar, um, you know, very shut down, didn't know how to dog, didn't know toys. And it takes them so long, um, which is why I would just beg listeners to always make sure that you're adopting and as we say adopt don't shop you know puppy mills are rampant they're prevalent hoarding situations they all contribute to the overcrowding that we're seeing at shelters now and it's just from the puppy mill side you know if people are buying from puppy mills um you know you're you're contributing to an industry that treats these animals horribly for the most part. And again, we've got so many wonderful cats and dogs and other animals, guinea pigs, you name it, in shelters who need a home. And again, we're at a crisis point with in shelters right now in that euthanizing at high rates. And so yeah, for you all to have Rupert, he landed a pot of gold with you guys, um, with you all. But uh, yeah, we, we need more people to, if not adopt, then if you have adopted and you have a wonderful story to tell about your adoptee, please share it with friends, with family. Let everybody know how great your experience has been so that they themselves will go to a shelter or a rescue when the time is right for a new, a new animal member in their family. So Karen, what about the people who say, oh, I would never get a, a puppy mill dog. I go to a responsible breeder. Oh, sticky wickets here. Um, this is, you know, Victoria, I think that you have to be very, very careful because there are so many puppy mill breeders who are posing as responsible breeders. And I, I would like to see the world not be as dependent on breeders, but I know that that won't happen. So what I would ask people to do is to really investigate the breeder if you are looking this way. There are responsible breeders, they do exist, but you have to find them, you have to do your research and you have to go to the breeder's home. It's a huge red flag, for instance, if the reader does not allow you inside his or her, um, you know, area to see any of his or her dogs, cats, whatever it might be. Um, it is, and I would also say, Victoria, never buy from a pet store that is selling dogs or cats 
unless they come from a shelter. We, for instance, at Humane Fort Wayne have partnered with PetSmart. There are some issues there too, but we've partnered with PetSmart and we have a whole array of cats from our shelter who now take up the once pet store cat spaces at PetSmart. So I, I wouldn't say don't always go to a pet store, but only buy adopt from a pet store if they're selling from, you know, adopting out animals from a rescue, from a local rescue. Thanks for that good advice. And I'm sure the animals thank you too. So as our time here comes to a close, I want to get into the real area of controversy. And that is that you are a vegan and you are an animal rescuer. And there are some amazing people doing animal rescue. I mean, they are sacrificing themselves. They are earning less money because they could be making more if they weren't doing all this animal rescue. They are salt of the earth, amazing, incredible people. And we're just so fortunate to have them among us. And yet when the rescue is over, when the day volunteering is over, they eat meat. And it's it's such a, like you said, I think sticky wicked about something else. We have a stiff, sticky episode because, you know, judge not lest you be not judged, but I don't get it how people can be so invested in animals and yet not get it that those that people eat are precious little souls as well. Help us unstick that one. Oh, Victoria, it's a hard one. And, you know, I have to say, first of all, that we're all humans and we are all born into a society that promotes meat eating. I think that if any listener has ever listened to Dr. Melanie Joy and her take on speciesism, we, and carnism, it's understood that meat eating, animal eating is normal. I grew up eating animals. I didn't see the light of day until 20 years ago, and I wish I would have done it sooner. But Victoria, the disconnect is is so, so uh, ironic, and it's so apparent. And what I will say is that an example, um, you know, when I was driving the Beagles to Virginia, and this is as we're just starting our trip, and I'm in the very high van, it's a big van, and I have a, a passenger, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in the driver's seat. And it, again, it's a high van. We're in a small town, I'm making a turn, turning into me uh, on the side of me is a truck destined for the slaughterhouse. There are pigs stacked on top of one another. I can see their snouts. I look down, I see their snouts and I see some of their eyes and I just almost wanna break into tears because we are going to rescue all of these beagles, which we should be doing, but nobody is going to rescue those pigs. But we should also be rescuing those pigs by not putting them on our plate. And for me, it was just such a, a weird experience to think, what if, the roles were flipped. What if the pigs were in the breeding facility and the beagles were going to slaughter? Um, how there is such a disconnect, Victoria, it's it's tough to understand, but I have, I have to start by remembering that we're all human. We're all born into this meat-eating society. And so it is the way that we see certain animals. We, again, lump animals into companion animals. They get categorized. We lump them into companion animals, 
to farmed animals, to wildlife animals, and then, you know, zoo animals. I mean, there are all sorts of categories we put them in. And for many of the categories, we don't touch them. We, for the most part, most people don't eat their companion animals. Now that isn't true in all of the world, I know, but here in the United States, you know, we don't eat our cats and dogs, but yet, as you said, we think nothing of, you know, going out for a burger that night, not, thinking about the cow who gave his or her life for that burger. Um, it, 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 I, I, again, start by saying that we are all born into this society and it's normalized, but I think that we need to have bigger awareness. And Victoria, this is where I want to be a bigger voice because it is, again, it is just such an irony to me. Again, I was at, uh, in another example, I was at a golden retriever rescue that I volunteer with, and it's a fantastic group, salt of the earth. I mean, these people are doing amazing, amazing work, but we had a picnic together and it was a wonderful time to be together. But, uh, you know, they were serving chicken barbecue. I was the only one who brought vegan food. And, you know, one of the comments was, oh my gosh, we never thought to bring vegan food. This is the same group who has gone leaps and bounds that has gone leaps and bounds to rescue dogs from the South Korean meat market. It, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard. You have to, I, I think you have to just take a step back and realize again, we're humans, we're born into the society, but you also have to start then if you are on the side that I am, I think that it's critical that you become a better, a, a role model to these people, that you address the issue in a way that's tactful, that's non-threatening, and that at least raises awareness about the subject. Um, because we can't get people to change their habits overnight, but we can get them to start thinking about changing their habits. And I think that just inserting little shifts in their thinking will hopefully veer them away from from animals but again it's a societal issue victoria i think again where we lump animals into certain categories and certain categories of animals are okay to eat and certain categories of animals are not okay to eat uh, and how we get around that especially in the animal rescue world which just seems like the logical place for this to be is is a question that i'm still grappling with and it's also something you know, it, it it does get tense sometimes, even with my colleagues in the animal rescue world, when I, you know, start talking a little bit, it's sometimes you just have to watch what you're saying, which is also kind of odd. <laughs> well, thank you for that explanation. And I love that you use the word tactful, because nobody has ever changed by being made to feel bad about themselves right. so the people that you work with are so lucky because I know if you bring up anything difficult you do it in a most tactful way and still stick to your convictions it's this very interesting little ethical tightrope I think that we all walk so Karen I could talk to you all day but I know you know you have to go right so if you are interested in this amazing woman and who couldn't be, you can find her online at karenaspasp.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, she is at Karen Asp Writer, which indeed she is. And what a wonderful thing to be. Thank you so much, Karen. We'll have to do this again. Victoria, thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening and adopt, don't shop and eat more plants. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> so listeners isn't she lovely oh 
I just think that running into people who are doing amazing things in the world and who can share that with others is just the greatest blessing. So this is our little time when I let you know what's going on in my world. And to be 100% honest, we're juggling the schedule here, and I'm not sure of the date that this is going to post. So I'm going to talk about something that will be happening in September of 2023, and that is the next Main Street Vegan Academy course. So if you happen to be vegan and you want to take your uh, outreach to the next level, I would be so honored if you would take a look at MainStreetVegan.com because that is where we talk about Main Street Vegan Academy, which for the past 11 years has been training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. Karen Asp, who um, you just heard from, is one of our graduates. We have 600 graduates on every continent except Antarctica, and they do amazing things. So the training is, is incredible. We have a wonderful faculty that includes medical doctors, dietitians, chefs, fashion designers, uh, lawyers, all kinds of incredible people who really know the vegan world. So when you leave the academy, and it's Zoom, so by uh, leaving, I guess I mean when you finish the course, you've been taught by the best, and it's all been live. So many people say, is it an online course? Well, kind of, because it's on Zoom, and you don't have to buy a plane ticket and go anywhere to take the class, and yet it's not one of these online courses that has recordings from three years ago or whatever, you are right there in the present moment as part of everything. It's interactive. You get to know your classmates. And then afterwards, we stay with you for whatever kind of support, follow-up, networking you may desire. And among our graduates are people who have jobs in plant-based businesses, animal rights organizations. We have people who are coaching and consulting because the certification that we offer VLCE is vegan lifestyle coach and educator. And we also have entrepreneurs, people who have started incredible businesses. So we have restaurants and food trucks, a cowboy boot business, a vegan B&B, &B, a vegan cooking vacation program in Costa Rica. There's just all sorts of amazing things going on because our students come here, they get some knowledge, they get some confidence, and they make some contacts, and then go out and change the world. So whether your thing is being vegan or something else that is your passion to make the world better, you can always be vegan and still have another passion. Just want to insert that. <laughs> I do invite you to go out today and be remarkable. Take care. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy at MainStreetVegan.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. Are you looking for help on your path to healing? I'm Lisa Campion. I'm a psychic, Reiki master, teacher, and energy healer. On my podcast, The Miracle of Healing, I'm going to help you on your healing path. Listen to conversations with leading teachers in energy medicine, quantum healing, and people who have recovered from loss and illness. Whether it's to take care of your own healing or to help other people, this is the podcast for you right here on mindbodyspirit.fm.